Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. Tonight we're going to be talking about the first noble truth. Uh, the last few weeks or so we've been talking about wise intention. And so the reason I wanted to pull us back a little bit and talk about the first noble truth, which falls, of course, under wise view, which is the first part of the path, wise intention being the second part of the path. The reason I wanted to pull back just a little bit is just to remind us that, you know, most of us, when we experience the Dharma initially, maybe we read a book or we hear a Dharma talk or we come to a meeting, um, we're all entering the stream, so to speak, from different places, right? We were called to the practice for different reasons. We get involved with different teachers or different lineages, and then we kind of navigate around, kind of like we're in the dark, trying to get a feel for sort of where we're located within the Dharma. And then it takes it takes a while. It really takes years, really, to, to kind of get settled into our practice and to figure out what we're doing and how we're supposed to be doing it. Sometimes we move from, you know, different lineages or different, um, different communities trying to find a good fit. So... When we do it that way, sometimes it's helpful to remember that no matter where we start in the Dharma, every, it's so skillfully created really, every part of the Dharma, every practice or Buddhist concept, every tool that we have really is supported and connected to every other tool and concept in the Dharma. So no matter where we start, we're only two or three concepts away from the entire teaching. So wherever we dive in, the practice that we're doing, the concepts that we're learning are given support and are supported by, you might say it's interdependent. All of the processes of the Dharma are interdependent with all the other parts. So the last six weeks or so, we've been talking about skillful intention, which is compassion and letting go and goodwill. And we've been looking at it in and of itself. And I just wanted to show us this evening that our skillful intention to be compassionate and to have goodwill for all beings without exception has a connection to wise view, which includes our first noble truth of suffering. And that part of the reason we make this commitment to be compassionate and to be skillful in wishing well for others and for ourselves, of course, let's not forget that we do offer compassion and you know self-compassion and well-being to ourselves. Part of the reason and the grounding of that intention comes from our insight into the nature of suffering. And so I wanted to talk about that insight, that seed where compassion is born, where goodwill for all beings is born. And in the Dharma, it's born in this idea of the first noble truth of suffering. So I just wanted to explore that a little bit uh, this evening. What's interesting about the first noble truth, it's probably one of the concepts we hear I don't know, most about oftentimes, right? Most everyone has heard of the first noble truth of suffering. If you ever go online and just type in Buddhism, one of the first thing that comes up when you Google it or you look at an article is always, Buddhists believe life is suffering. And usually it's exaggerated and misunderstood, but it usually starts by saying, Buddhists are really depressed. They think that life is suffering. 
they want to eradicate their self and it just it suddenly it, it goes into the slippery slope of this nihilistic existential darkness and that's really not what it's about of course but the first noble truth of suffering can be easily misunderstood and the depth and power of its insight can be easily breezed past. And so that's why I like to keep coming back to it. The first noble truth actually reads, with life comes suffering, right? With life comes stress, discontent, dis-ease, uh, unsatisfactoriness. So this, this idea that life is suffering is really talking about the fact that as human beings, universally, we experience discontent. There's this discontentedness that accompanies the human experience. It's not intended to be fatalistic. It's intended to be a starting point for freedom. It's really intended to be a doorway that we step through. When we talk about the, the universality of human suffering or human discontent, the way I like to express it is that the Buddha is inviting us to consider that stress, which is an equally good translation of dukkha, which is the suffering, and I'll, I'll go into the etymology in a second, but this translation of life is suffering or with human existence comes discontent. What the Buddha is really inviting us to consider that discontent or unsatisfactoriness is both normative and universal. Normative and universal. Normative meaning Wherever you look in the human experience, you're going to run across discontent in human beings. And universal, meaning every single human being touches this experience. To be human is to have some sense of discontent in our lives at some point. More <laughs> At some point. Most often, quite frequently. But at some point, <laughs> if I'm looking out into this Zoom room or if I'm... Uh, if you're hearing this on a podcast, I'm presuming at some point there's been some discontent. <laughs> I've had significant discontent, so I'm presuming we're all sharing in this experience. So the the difference would be, to use another example with what's going on in Eastern Europe uh, with Ukraine and Russia, war is is normative for human beings. Throughout history, war is there. Human beings have been warring. And if you look it up statistically, there has been very few years in the course of the last 100,000 years where there hasn't been some kind of conflict or war going on. So for the most part, war is normative to the human experience, but it's not universal. Not all of us have been in a, a situation where we're experienced or touched by the consequences directly from war. So it's normative, but not universal. Dukkha, the stress of discontent that's mentioned in the first noble truth is universal. Every one of us as a human being has experienced discontent. And this, this fact that the Buddha states in the declaration of his first part of his Eightfold Path is designed to bind us to the human experience, to remind us that we as human, as a giant human family, all share in the dukkha of what it is to be human, that we all experience discontent on some level. Some unsatisfactoriness is there at the core. So its initial reasoning is to help us get in touch with our humanity. It's not to depress us. It's to connect us to the source of human connectivity. And so that's where we want to lean in when we're talking about the first noble truth. 
connecting this to the idea of compassion. Getting in touch with the fact that humans suffer is intended through our meditation practice to till the soil of compassion. Once we see that suffering is a part of the human experience, it makes sense that we wish well and that we open our hearts to all human beings without exception. And it's not easy, as we know, and as we've talked about in the past, when we talked about compassion and goodwill, it's not easy to offer compassion and goodwill to all beings. That being said, the idea of getting touched with this universality of human discontent is supposed to be a doorway into universal compassion. We get in touch with the pain of our own human experience, and we begin to realize, oh, the heartache I'm experiencing is human heartache. That means every human that I meet has also been touched by some discontent, some pain, some crisis, some death. And so we can then open up our hearts to all beings when we can see that universal suffering within ourselves. So it's considered to be a pathway to compassion, a doorway. It's not just a de declaration that life sucks. <laughs> I just want to clarify that, right? It is declaring that, but it's, it's really in the context of saying, if you can get in touch with the, the universal nature of your discontent and realize that all beings experience that, then when we come across other humans, which we tend to do frequently, we can then open up our hearts with a sense of, may you be well, right? May you be free from suffering. I understand that you too suffer. May you be free from that suffering. May we all be free from that suffering. So the first noble truth connects us to the human family through the doorway of dukkha, of discontent and stress, but opens up to a sense of heart connectedness with others. So that's where it's intended to go. I really enjoy the etymology of dukkha. I really enjoy the etymology of dukkha. So again, dukkha means suffering. That's how we usually translate it. I would invite you to consider that when you translate it as suffering, that that has such a heavy connotation, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but my mind, when I say suffering, my mind directly goes to some pretty intent, like it immediately thinks like kind of worst case scenario. And it's true, that is what it refers to. But equally, calling it stress, unsatisfactoriness, dis-ease, or even um, just uneasiness is also an equally good translation of the term. And I think it's helpful to know that you know, dukkha has a gradation. It just doesn't mean the worst case scenario. It also just refers to the fact that because human experience is always in motion, that we have impermanence in our lives, there's going to be a sense of unsatisfactoriness. We're never going to really be able to hang our hat on something that's always going to be pleasant, always going to be creating a sense of ease. And if you think of all the good things that we tend to hang our hats on, like our love relationships and our families and our friends and our careers, all of which are worthy of engaging in, right? And giving us some kinds of pleasure and a sense of ease. But we know that all those things equally cause suffering, right? They're not just things that we kind of engage with and it's just all beautiful and loving all the time, right? Being a part of a family is stressful. Being a parent is not always easy and fun and fulfilling, right? It's hard work. Being uh, a part of a 
job, being employee, employer, having to maintain our homes, family life, this stuff is imbued with discontent, even though it also has parts that are completely joyful and, and I was about to say satisfying, not ultimately satisfying, of course, they can bring us pleasure. So I would just invite you when you hear the word dukkha to remember the lower end of it. Remember that it means unsatisfactoriness. It means that things don't satiate. And that's an equally wise door to walk through. It doesn't necessarily mean intense pain. That's the, that's the main uh, take home here. So the etymology dukkha, so du, du means bad and ka, K-H-A means empty. So it's bad and empty. And where this comes from, and, and many of you know this from uh, Joseph Goldstein's book, uh, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. He, he talks about this etymology. I pulled it up this week uh, just from Wikipedia. And this is the etymology of the term dukkha. And this is what they say historically. The ancient Aryans who brought the Sanskrit language to India were a nomadic horse and cattle breeding people who traveled in horse or ox-drawn vehicles. S-U and D-U-S are prefixes indicating good or bad. The word ka in later Sanskrit means sky, ether, or space. But originally, the word ka meant whole, particularly an axle hole on an ox cart or a horse-drawn vehicle. The word sukha originally meant having a good axle hole, that is, an axle that fits the wheel well and gives a smooth ride. And so dukkha meant having a bad axle on an ox cart or a horse cart. And so it meant that you had a bumpy ride. And dukkha originally means that it's not smooth sailing. So I like that, that analogy or that uh, etymology because it just reminds us that life is a bumpy ride. The first noble truth says, hey, welcome to the human experience. It's going to be rough going. It's going to be bumpy. And I always, I always imagine, so my own vehicle is like 20 years old, barely has anything electric. That which is electric doesn't work most of the time. Most of the time. And I just think of riding in an ox cart because you're talking about wood on unpaved, you could call them roads, I suppose, but you know, no air conditioning, no roof. No seat warmers, no Bluetooth. I mean, it's just a great image. You know, how often in your life do you feel like no matter what's going on, it's just you're always being rocked by something. So I would encourage you to look at Dukkha and remember the origin of the word as being a bumpy ride that's not smooth sailing and is consistently bumpy, at least in some regard. So that's where I think it's helpful to bring our hearts back to that sense of Dukkha being uneasiness, right? A sense of constant agitation and stress behind the scenes. It is always important to remember, and I like to not forget this, that dukkha does not mean pain. And this is something that's easy to forget, even when you're reading the suttas or you're, you know, doing your practice. Oftentimes when we're talking about dukkha, we do talk about it as if it's pain, but it's really good to remember that it's not referring to physical pain pain. It's the mental emotional response to pain. So it's the psychological part. It's the mental part of the experience of discontent. It is not really referring to the physical part. So when we think of liberation from suffering, we're not going to be at a point where we don't feel pain, right? Because that would not be that good. So if you didn't feel pain, that would be a problem. It would be a problem. And if you have a condition where 
there's a desensitization of your nervous system and you can't feel pain, then there's more injury. So we're not talking about being free from injury. What we're being free from, the liberation is the freedom within. It's that psychological freedom to not feel discontent on the bumpy ride, not to feel so attached to the outcome, not to feel so thrown when outside circumstances get in our way. So it's important to remember. And what I wanted to read to you tonight is the little paragraph about the second arrow. And we often talk about the second arrow as being a parable related to how the Buddha talks about dukkha and what he really means by it. And most, I've heard like, I think like four or five different versions of the parable, but none of them actually match the actual sutta. (laughs) Over time, they've become really storied and really elaborate and elongated. And then every time I go back to the actual sutta, I'm so surprised how specific it is in in what the Buddha talks about. So this is the Sala Sutta. So let me read this to you about the, the second arrow. It goes like this. The blessed one said, when touched with a feeling of pain, the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person sorrows, grieves, and laments, beats their chest, becomes distraught. So they feel two pains, physical and mental, just as if they were to shoot a person with an arrow, and right afterwards were to shoot them with another one, so that the person would feel the pains of two arrows. In the same way, when touched with the feeling of pain, the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person sorrows, grieves, and laments, beats their chest, becomes distraught. So they feel two pains, physical and mental. So I always find that interesting because there's a lot of versions of that story. And maybe there are other suttas where the the story is elaborated in a different way. But this is the one that I'm most familiar with, the Sala Sutta. And so the point here, no matter the translation, is that there's these two types of pains. There's the initial contact of the outside experience. And then there truly is, as the Buddha is saying, our response, our reactivity. And that reaction is the dukkha. So we might all be in the ox cart on this bumpy ride, but how are we reacting to being in the ox cart? Like once we've accepted that we're in it and we have to be in the ox cart to move from place to place, then how are we going to deal with the fact of human suffering, that constant sense of discontent or the fact that we're not infallible, right? That, that, that concept and that acknowledgement that, any, anywhere around the corner, we could have a heart attack or a stroke or be in an accident or someone can pass away. And on some level, that's the ox cart. But how we manage that, how we use insight meditation and mindfulness practice to be able to make the ride as easy as possible with the highest aspiration that everyone riding along in the ox cart will have a better ride. That's kind of how we're approaching this sutta, or at least that's how I approach it when I'm trying to get some wisdom out of it. So the two pains, think of it that there's really two pains in consciousness. I wanted to make a comment. I saw this amazing meme. I have to look at it. I have to find, I thought I had saved it. I really have to send it out on Instagram or put it in the next uh, newsletter that I send out. But I saw this wonderful meme and 
it really spoke to me because I had never thought of it this way. And the meme was trying to comment on the fact that even though we can say that human beings are all in the same boat, right? In the gen in the biggest sense of the word, right? We're all on the planet. We're all going to experience discontent. I saw this wonderful meme that spoke to the fact that even though we're all in the ox cart, there is different privileges for those people in the ox cart that come with where you're born into the world. And the way the meme was set up, it said something like, it might be true that we're all facing the same storm, but it's also true that we're all traveling in different boats. Some of us are traveling in rowboats and some of us are traveling in yachts. Some of us are in life jackets actually in the water and some of us have an easier way out. And so I just wanted to remind ourselves of that privilege that, yeah, we are all in the ox cart, but some of us have blankets and pillows. Some of us have more food. So when we're talking about the first noble truth of suffering, oftentimes it can be an easy way of disregarding suffering of certain groups of people by saying, well, you know, it's universal. We're all suffering and we'll just, you know, we'll all get out of it. And it's really important. It's really important for myself as a white male to remind myself of this, that Yes, I can speak about this universality of suffering, but the fact of the matter is I grew up with significant privilege, not only because of my ethnicity and being a male, but also financially I grew up in privilege and a bunch of other privileges I've had over the course of time. And so I'm really cautious about talking about the first noble truth and reminding us that yes, reactivity causes the dukkha. But we're not all necessarily starting from the same place in the ox cart because we're born into different parts of the country, different parts of the world, different strata in society. And we don't want the first noble truth to create ambivalence towards other people's suffering. We really want to use the first noble truth to connect us in wanting to help ourselves and help others. So I wanted to comment on that because it can be used to kind of dismiss or disregard others by saying, well, you know, it's dukkha, you know, just sit on the cushion. And we got to be careful um, of our own privilege when we're talking about the first noble truth, because um, it's not the same, right? It's not that same equity is not there across the board. So I just like to say that as a cautionary tale when we're coming up with this concept. A couple other things I wanted to talk about when it comes to dukkha, and this has to do with compassion as well. The Buddha lists six or seven universal experiences or conditions that give rise to discontent. And of course, one of them is birth. And I particularly liked, I'll, actually, I'll give you the list. We're not going to talk about all of them tonight. I'll talk about birth, but these are the ones uh, that the Buddha talks about. Birth, aging, illness, death, being with things that you don't want to be with. So having things you don't want, being around people you don't like, or being separated from things or people that you do like. So longing for the loved ones and the family or having to spend time with people that cause you discontent. So, and then the last one is the five clinging aggregates, which is our clinging to our body, clinging to emotions, clinging to awareness. So the, the Buddha has this list of kind of universal conditions that bind us as human beings that tend to give rise to our first noble truth of suffering. But I wanted to give a little... Uh, focus tonight just on birth, because oftentimes when the Buddha says, you know, birth is suffering, I think most of us are like, oh yeah, you know, you come into the world and you're born and okay, the baby comes in and, you know, you got to take care of the baby. We don't come in, you know, protected or being able to take our, take care of ourselves. So, you know, there's suffering. 
But I kind of wanted to go deeper with this 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 image um, because I think it's the Buddha says it for some real important reasons. And I wanted to just refer to a couple Western psychologists going way back to psychoanalysis, actually. Um, and one is Otto Rank from the 1920s, and one is another uh, psychoanalyst, psychoanal psychoanalyst uh, called Wilfred Bion. And both of these psychologists, if you will, made a really interesting comment about birth in the human experience. And I wanted to just read this to you. Otto Rank says this about human birth, which I find really connects to the Dharma. Otto Rank wrote that all human beings suffer trauma by virtue of being born and of the inevitable, violent, physical, and psychic separation we suffer at birth from our mother. Rank believed that the physical event of birth, where the infant moves from the state of harmony and union with the mother into a painful state of separation, resulting from the traumatic and often violent circumstances that we call birth, constitutes the earliest anxiety that a human being experiences. And I thought this was really interesting, right? It's just reminding ourselves of the danger of birth, danger to the mother, danger to the child, right? Historically, women died in childbirth all the time. So birth is suffering, has a real deep meaning in that sense of coming back in touch with our own humanity, that being born and coming into the universe is a precarious transition for the mother and for the child. Wilford Bion says this, a very similar impression. He wrote that children are born into an inner state of chaos and confusion because their earliest feelings are not feelings at all, but rather undifferentiated feeling states. He calls these undifferentiated feeling states unthought thoughts or sense impressions that are given to the mind before actual thinking comes into being. These feeling states or early sensations hit the infant's mind in lightning bursts of sheer inescapable experience. It is an unmitigated event experienced in the fullness and strength of human reality. As such, these sensations are often unbearable to the infant. So really, whether or not, and that's a, obviously a pretty intense proclamation, to whatever degree that is true, we just acknowledge in that sense that when the Buddha says birth is suffering, it reminds us of how we come into the world, right? We come into the world scared, like, hello, what is going on? It's not like we come into the world just kind of like, all right, I'm here, let's be chill. Like, that's not what happens, right? It's an intense experience for everyone involved. And it's, I think the Buddha is really reminding us when he says birth is suffering, for us to get back in touch with where we've all come from, that unified experience of coming into the world and the vulnerability of being a child, right? Of being an infant. And it's, remark it's remarkable that human beings have survived all of these hundreds of thousands of years. But when you think of the human, you know, infant and the vulnerability, we can't protect ourselves, right? We can't feed ourselves, you know, we can't communicate. We have no mobility. So all of those basic things we take for granted as an adult, we come into the world with this incredible vulnerability and we need each other to survive. From the very moment that we're born, we need each other 
to survive. So one of the exercises I like to do, tying this back into our talks about compassion and goodwill, is to remember that every human adult or every human person that we come across came into this world as this completely vulnerable, completely helpless being, and has struggled in some way or another to manage to become who they are today. And maybe that human baby didn't get the love, didn't get the care, didn't have the economic, maybe they were born into poverty, maybe they were born into violence. You know, we just don't know. And it's really helpful as a meditation to remind ourselves that all these beings came in completely vulnerable, with disconsent, with with dukkha, and they've had to make it in the world. And we have no idea what that journey has been like for the other person. And that remembrance that birth is suffering can open up a doorway to compassion for all beings, especially when we come across beings that are doing harm, right? The Dharma never invites us to consent to harm, but the Buddha does invite us to normalize that harm occurs in the human experience and to help us to relieve some of our discontent by just really acknowledging that it's a bumpy ride from start to finish. We come in vulnerable. We need protection and safety. We don't always get it. And sometimes as we end up an adult, we then knowingly and unknowingly do harm to others. So I always like to use that first part of this, like remembering that birth, to remember that all of these folks that we see who are doing harm knowingly and unknowingly, have gone through this whole experience of being a human, and we just have no clue how they got there, what their experience was. It's been a bumpy ride, and when we see people doing harm, we can ground ourselves in that universal human experience of dukkha and wish them well. We don't want to see them doing harm. May they be free from whatever suffering it was that led them to this place of harming others. And that allows us to do it with a sense of integrity, right? So it's not performative. Because I know from my own experience, when I see dukkha out there and I see people doing gross harm that's so obvious, you know, my heart doesn't always open up. It's kind of like, eh, I wish they would not do the harm, but wishing them well is a whole other layer of reality, right? That's a whole step up to a spiritual experience, be able to look at someone doing harm and say, may you be free. May you be free. May you be safe. May you be free from harm. So I'm just bringing that in. I really like to touch on birth more than some of these other ones. The other ones we talk about aging, illness, death. I feel like are a little more obvious. Birth, I kind of think we blow past a little bit. And I like to ground us in the suffering of birth because I think it's really, really unique that the Dharma starts there, right? It's the first one on the list. Birth is, you know, is suffering. So one other thing I'd like to mention about our vulnerability, and I think this is also... Um, I don't know why I reflect on this, but I think from the very beginning of doing Dharma talks on this subject, I was Googling, um, I remember the first time I ever did a Dharma talk on the Four Noble Truths, I found myself Googling like death rates and what causes death commonly in the human experience because I had this sense of my own vulnerability. Like dukkha is there and for some reason my mind went to looking up the vulnerability of the human experience. And this is one of the things I found that still sticks with me. And for some reason, it opens up my heart to other beings. So one thing that I'm reminded of is that we walk in the world as adults and we might have general safety, right? But the vulnerability of embodiedness 
is always with us. The, the, in, the interior temperature of the human body has to be around 98 or so degrees. Four or five degrees off, just four or five degrees off, brain damage, right? One way or the other. So we're so vulnerable as human beings as we walk through the world. And that startles me to think, you know, not 20 degrees, not th four or five degrees, and that's it for the human, the human being. A similar vulnerability is the fact that human beings, I always like to say this, human beings don't have a hard outer shell, right? I mean, we've got a skull which does some protection, but the skull is not designed to hit the pavement, right? Like falling three feet, just falling down is enough to get injury. That's how vulnerable we are with each step we have in this world. There's this incredible vulnerability. So here's the one stat that just is always remarkable to me that every year, 226 million human beings worldwide, 226 million beings die from just tripping and falling. Something so simple. And to me, that just rem it reminds me as I move through my day and I move through my world that every human being I see is that close. Is It's just that a slip and fall. That's how vulnerable our hearts and minds are being human and that dukkha that we, that we share. And that to me, it helps me when I look at others who are doing harm, when I want to forgive myself for my own harm, I like to remind myself of the vulnerability of human beings, that human beings are so soft and squishy and that we're just one step away from significant harm or death. And so these type of recollections are really encouraged in the Dharma because it grounds us in that connectedness with all beings and it opens a doorway for the possibility of compassion especially with those around us who might be causing harm and suffering explicitly. So again, our vulnerability is something I like uh, to remind ourselves of when we talk about this. I think I'll, I think I'll pause there. So yeah, we've got about five minutes. So let's, um, let's join together in some loving kindness. Uh, if we will. Thank you so much for attending tonight. Those who are new, haven't been here before, thanks so much for being in community with us. I really appreciate you all showing up. When, any, when anything is going wrong in the world, when I come here on Wednesdays, I always feel so much better afterwards being able to hang out with you guys. So, all right, let's fall back into presence. Just take a couple long, slow, deep breaths in through the nose and out through the mouth. And on the exhale, relax back into the body. Bringing as much of the body as possible into awareness in this present moment. check in with mood. It's been almost an hour and a half. How are you feeling in this moment? And just welcome the mood. And again, let's 
bring awareness to the part of the body we identify as the heart. And just noticing the truth of the sensations there in the chest. You might take a long, slow, deep breath and imagine that breath energy filling the heart with grace and ease. At times when we do loving kindness, it can help to begin with that touch of gratitude. And in this case, just being grateful for Sangha. That tonight we all meditated together, discussed the Dharma together without fear. We were safe and comfortable. We have food, electricity, medicine at our disposal. We got to come together and practice. What gratitude. Gratitude for Sangha. And with that liveliness of heart, that sense of rest and ease, let us wish well for all beings this evening. Let's wish that all beings are free from fear. All beings free from harm, from discontent. Let us wish that all beings know true kindness and true compassion in this lifetime. to the degree that it's comfortable, that our heart is capable in this moment. We just intentionally open our hearts to those suffering in Eastern Europe right now. To whatever degree it makes sense to your heart in this moment. Let us wish those folks well. May all beings share in the merits of our practice. 
May our awakening serve others. May all beings be free. Thank you, my friends, for joining us this evening. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.